Do grab your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, as always. If uh, you don't have a hard copy of the Scriptures, we would love for you to take that home with you, uh, that you would be able to have a hard copy of the Scriptures, and so uh, feel free to take it. We'll be glad to replace it this week. And uh, so we'd love for you to be able to follow along. We're in this series, Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Kevin did such a great job last week. I was so thankful for him to step in. Uh, I know he complained that I gave him too many verses to preach on, um, and so in order just to stick it to him, I'm only doing six verses today. Today. That'll show him. That'll, that'll teach him. That's the way to go. But he, he did such an excellent job. Um, he also didn't actually deal with the passage, and he told me I had to deal with the passage during the podcast. That was not really fair, but whatever. That's fine. It was a really excellent job of setting the stage for Pentecost, that um, it's in our brokenness and in our failure that the Holy Spirit has a place to come and fill us. And I think that's such an important message for us to get. Uh, so often we want to be at the top of our game as the Holy Spirit comes. And it's really like Peter in our brokenness that the Spirit comes and empowers us. And so um, today we're going to look at the very back end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to look at what is a pretty famous passage, probably one that you've heard before, uh, about the beginnings of the early church. Um, Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist, uh, wrote a book called the, the Triumph of Christianity. And in that book, from a sociological perspective, he makes the case that historically, the movement of the early church is unique and the most significant sociological movement that has ever happened on the face of the earth. He statistically lays out the fact that from Pentecost, AD 40 or so, there were about 3,000 Christians. And by A.D. 350, uh, just a little over 300 years later, there were 50 million Christians, or what translates to 53% of the known world at the time. That's wild. How does a movement start to move like that? Uh, there, there wasn't a website. It wasn't a strategic plan. They didn't have values. They didn't have that really cool hourglass, right? They didn't, they didn't have a, a, a staff structure or an org chart. Uh, they didn't even have governmental support or uh, the support of the people around them. Well, how did they move the way that they did? And the short answer to that is that they embodied the love of Jesus to the world around them. They became a community that it was desirable to connect with because they embodied the love of God. Where we are going to pick up is right after this powerful move of the Spirit that we call Pentecost. The power of God, if you were with us last week, falls on these early disciples, about a hundred or so of them, and uh, manifests, the Holy Spirit manifests himself in fire, tongues of fire on these men and women, a power and glory flowing through them. There's a, a very short declaration of the word at Pentecost, and thousands come to faith. This power of the Spirit moving. What I want you to see is what happens after the power of God moves in that way. And so I'm going to ask Georgia to come and read for us Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So listen to the word of God. Good morning, Alliance Church. As Brian said, I'll be reading from Acts 2, 42 through 47. I'll be reading through the message, so it might not look the same as what you're reading. They committed themselves 
to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owed, owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their number, number grew as God added to those who were saved. So let's ask the question of the text as we fast forward it 2,000 years. If the power of God in fire and glory and weight and signs and wonders, if the power of God fell on us this morning, may it be so, if the power of God falls upon us, what would our response be? I don't know about you, but my immediate response is, uh, is big. It's gathering people together. It's, it's demonstrating the signs and wonders and the glory of God. When the power of God, tongues of fire, weight, glory, fell on the early church, you know what they did? They divided themselves into small communities where they could be deeply committed to one another and teach and engage the truths of who God was through the way of Jesus. It was really small. It's not glamorous. But it was very intentional. They became these small communities of people who were committed to one another, journeying with one another, walking with one another, embodying love to one another. What I want to look at today is, in this familiar passage, uh, just three different aspects of the way that God works through his people then and now and what that looks like for us. I want to look at what they were devoted to. I want to look at how they were directed and then very specifically how the development process worked. So devoted, directed, and developed. Full disclosure, devoted and directed were really easy. I had to work hard to find a D word for the last one. But I did get there. Develop does work. And so I'll show you that when we, uh, when we make it there. So we find in verse 42, the, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That word that Paul uses for devoted, we tend to see as a completed act, but the, the Greek word is one of process. It's to attend to constantly or to give focus to. Uh, the, the devotion that the early church had was moving towards something, not necessarily completing something. It was uh, in the process of, of paying attention to those, those couple things. Um, and so I would ask the question, what are we devoted to? And I would ask you to move from Sunday morning to call it Tuesday afternoon or, or, or Thursday night. Because Sunday morning, we're devoted to the things that are all around us, the, the teaching of the word and the worship of the people and the, the fellowship around us. We're devoted to a certain kind of things. But if we're honest, as we move into the middle of the week, our devotions start to shift. 
We start to be devoted to things like vocation and family and uh, finances and hobbies and interests and things that are not bad. They're just the things that we tend to be devoted to as the week starts to move on. In fact, for most of us, if we're just going to stereotype 21st century North Americans, what we're devoted to is our individual desires and comforts. The majority of what we do, even outward decisions in relationships and, uh, that are engaging other people, are built around us having a life that we like, that we have what we need, that we are comfortable, that we enjoy the life that we have. And, and please hear me, those things are not bad. In fact, Paul says to Timothy that um, we should enjoy the life that we've been given. It's good for us to do those things. But our devotion tends to be arranged in that way. I don't want us to scrub the text of these 3,000 people and their devotions. Because for me, I tend to come to this text, and and in my head, if I was going to paint it, I would just imagine these 3,000 people kind of emerging out of nothing and uh, all of a sudden being devoted to these four things that are laid out in front of us. That all of a sudden, they just start being devoted there. But they weren't like that. They were uh, 3,000 people who have 3,000 different stories and 3,000 different sets of devotions. And what happened was that the Holy Spirit started to change their devotion based on the power of the Spirit that was flowing through them. They became devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They didn't start that way. They, they came with stuff, just like you and I come with stuff, and the Holy Spirit started to shift their devotion. And part of what we need to be asking of the text is, God, are you shifting my devotion, and what does it look like for you to do that? The early church is devoted to four things. Let me walk through them quickly. First, the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus as grounded in the scriptures. So when they're coming to the text, the Old Testament text for them, uh, the Bible as they knew it, as, uh, as coming to the life of Jesus, their intention is to engage the life and teaching the way of Jesus in light of the Old Testament text. We know this because in Acts chapter 1, when they needed to fill out the 12 disciples and they chose Matthias, they chose him in part because he had been with them from the beginning. From the baptism on, he had been there, and that was valuing the fact that the disciples, the apostles' teachings, had to be those who were grounded in the life and work of Jesus. But it wasn't just experiential. Often when we talk about God, we tend to default to the experiential. Just imagine if Peter, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the spirit falls, the tongues of fire are there, everybody's speaking in tongues, and Peter stands up in front of everybody, and he says, Guys, let me try to explain to you what I'm feeling right now. And let me tell you, based on my personality type and my family of origin and a little bit of my father wound, like what's going on here? Like there's some stuff that I'm feeling. You're probably going to feel something a little bit different than that. But this is, that's not what he'd said, right? What did he say? This is what the prophet Joel said would come. Right? Grounding it back in the scripture, not away from experience, but not solely experience. It wasn't just a matter of, I feel this and you can feel what you want. It was, this is what God is doing. This is the way that it's grounded in the reality of the way that God has worked for thousands of years. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. They're devoted to the fellowship. Um, 
If you know one Greek word, it very possibly is the Greek word for fellowship. That word is koinonia. Lots of you know that word. It's also a fun word to say, koinonia. Um, it, it gets translated community and fellowship, but actually there's a little bit more of a direction to it than that. Koinonia would be the word for like a partnership in uh, business or a, a, a connection that moves toward something. Uh, this wasn't simply fellowship for the sake of fellowship. This is fellowship for a purpose. We talked a couple weeks ago about the epidemic of loneliness and how individualism has put us in a position where we're desperately in need of other people. There's value to fellowship for the sake of fellowship, but that's not what the church has ever been intended to be. Now, let me say, there should be fellowship and there should be connection that meets us in our loneliness. But honestly, if all you're looking for is connection, there are way easier ways to get it that don't require you getting up so early on Sunday morning. You can sleep in. Like I, I've said for years, church is a really weird uh, hobby. Like I don't know why you would do this just for fun. Like th this is, th th the likeness of Christ being formed in us is hard work. Like why do we wanna just like pretend at it, dabble at it? Like if you wanna, if you want a community for the sake of community, there's lots of them out there. This is a community for a purpose. The way that I'll say it, and this is uh, part of what you'll hear over and over again through uh, the, the book of Acts, they don't, this, is a, this is a people who do not have the mission of community, but they're a community on mission. Let me say that again. They don't have the mission of community, but they're a community on mission. And those are dramatically different things because when we have the mission of community, our goal is just to connect. But their goal was not just to connect. Their goal was to connect with a purpose, the purpose of Jesus that was working through them. They were devoted to the fellowship. Christine Pohl, who's an ethicist at Fuller Seminary, uh, makes this statement in her book about community. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom or to push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon that we'll ever get to preach. A community on mission as we live together and we invite people into the life of Christ. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. This is the one that gets most debated among theologians as to exactly what's happening here. The unity among the theologians is that this, uh, this is, at the very least, the, the practice of the Lord's Supper. Uh, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, part of what they were doing was breaking bread in remembrance of him. But what most theologians agree on is it's not just communion, certainly not communion in the way that we would practice it, but a regular daily connection to a breaking of the bread that, yes, reminded them of the Lord's death and uh, the invitation that we have into life, but also as part of a larger uh, regimen of habits and rhythms that were part of their normal life. They engaged the lifestyle of Jesus. You've probably heard me say before, you can't get the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And so many of us come to faith in the hopes that we'll just get Jesus by osmosis. But Jesus modeled for us a way of living, and that's what the, the early church started to step into, was a way of life that included a regular connection together. In fact, we have there in the text that part of their rhythm was a daily uh, time in the temple and then coming back to homes and eating together and connecting with one another. This is all part of the normal habit, the part of the rhythm of life. And then they're devoted to the prayers. Now, um, 
there's a lot of different ways that we can interpret this, but what we have to interpret coming out of Acts chapter 2 is that they were devoted to the fact that God could do things that they couldn't do. One of those themes that we'll talk about again and again going through the book of Acts is that they were expectant that the power of God would show up. Like, just think about where they came from. Peter stands up in front of thousands of people. He gives an eight to 10 minute sermon where he really challenges people. I mean, he's, he's pretty forceful. These are the people who were, many of them, a month earlier, part of the crowd that was yelling to crucify Jesus. He yells at them for eight minutes, and 3,000 of them come to faith. Like, who thought that was Peter? Nobody thought that was Peter, right? And all throughout the, the, the book of Acts, what you're going to find, are, these are normal people who are doing normal things, and they're expecting that God's going to do something extraordinary. When they gather to pray, they're not gathering to say prayers in the corner. They're gathering for God to do powerful works through them. A.W. Tozer says it this way, convicting but uh, helpful, I think. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. When they're gathered for the prayers, they're gathered to ask God, expect God to do what they can't possibly do on their own. They were devoted. But they weren't just devoted, they were directed. Um, I don't know if you caught it when Georgia was reading, but there's this uh, strange section in the middle, uh, in, uh, starting in verse 44. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Let me ask you a question. If you came to the Welcome to York Alliance class, just hypothetically after this gathering, and uh, what I said to you at that class was, um, so we're committed to the way of Jesus and caring for one another, so what I'm asking you to do is to sell all of your earthly possessions, put it together in a common pot, and we'll share with you and everybody else as they have need, we'll take care of that, what would you do? You would run screaming for the door, and if you didn't, you have a problem, right? You, of course you would do that, because that sounds like Jim Jones in the People's Temple, like the Kool-Aid's getting served next, right? Like, that's crazy talk. So, like, what, what's happening here? Because that's pretty wild. Well, a couple things that we need to say. First, this doesn't seem to be at any point in the book of Acts directed by any human, let alone the leaders of the church. This was not leadership directed. This was, um, th- this was something that God did among his people. It also didn't uh, happen at one time. It wasn't like you entered into the church, you sold everything that you had, and you put everything together. Um, it, it just happened here and there along the way as needs were exposed, and somebody said, oh, I could meet that need. Let me, uh, I have this thing. Let me sell this thing. Let me do this thing. Let me give you this. And, and so there were uh, uh, like ways that needs were met along the way, and it doesn't seem to be in conflict at all throughout the book of Acts with either private property or wealth. There seems to be both things in the church throughout the book of Acts. Somebody like Lydia later on in the book of Acts is somebody who's both wealthy and has a home that everybody's meeting in and she's sponsoring and, and giving her wealth away, but she's, she, she has it and she doesn't seem to be like liquidating it, right? So there doesn't seem to be any opposition to private property or wealth, but here's what does happen. When the Spirit of God directs 
the people of God, generosity comes out of it. Now, it's really wild because we think about when the Spirit of God comes upon people, there's going to be like prophecy and words of knowledge and tongues and healings and, and, and all that's part of what God does by his Spirit. But the marker of his Spirit seems to be a change in our heart that creates love for one another that manifests itself in generosity. Throughout not just the book of Acts, but if you draw a thread through the church throughout history, you see that the Spirit of God creates generosity among his people. This is not human-directed because once this becomes compulsory, it doesn't get to be weird. It gets to be cultish, right? Like there's, there's major problems with compulsory generosity. But when the Spirit of God directs, it starts to look totally different. These four things that they're devoted to are not part of a new strategy that when you come to the Welcome to the First Church of Jerusalem class, you find out about. But rather, they start to emerge because God's directing through the power of the Spirit. So they're devoted to these four things. They're being directed by the Spirit. But now there's this tricky question of what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus when Jesus has just floated off into the air? Like, up until a month ago, uh, it was really, really simple to follow Jesus. Because you literally just found the guy, and he would say, follow me. And you would follow him. It was really simple. It was like, he's going over here, so I'm going to go over here. He's going to talk to this person about that. I'm going to listen to what he's saying. He's going to do this activity over here. I'm going to go over there and do Like, you just literally followed him. Now what do they do? How do they gain the life of Christ. Well, in order to get there, let's fast forward from first century to 21st century. We're in the same place. Jesus is not here among us in that uh, incarnate flesh way that we can just like get behind the rabbi and do what he says to do. How do we become disciples? Well, um, you hopefully, although I'm not going to test you because it would make me sad if you failed, you hopefully know what we call discipleship. So we've said for years, there are three primary activities of a disciple. A disciple is defined by three actions. We are to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. Some of you said that with me. It made my heart happy. Thank you so much. So, so we're, we're called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did, which, which is wonderful. That's part of the rhythm of what it means to be a disciple. It's a simple way for us to think about discipleship. But if we're being honest, we get to that middle one, become like Jesus, and we think, ooh, that's going to require some change, right? Because um, unless you're very different than me, you're not naturally like Jesus. You're naturally actually very different than Jesus. So how do we become like him? Well, that requires us to have some kind of a change theory, a way that we change, that we become uh, different. Whether we change to be like him or we become like the world, there's a way that we change. And so you've seen this graphic a bunch of times over the years, and this is, this is the way that we talk about change. So uh, we talk about change through these four factors above the line. We say that change takes time uh, over a long period of time, and through suffering we change, but those four factors at the top that's the way we change. We change through the things that we're taught. We change through the community that's around us, the people that we engage. We, we change through the practices or the habits of our lives, the things that um, we do in rhythm over and over and over again. And we change through the power of the Holy Spirit at work around us, 
or the environment, the, the places around us that shape us, but as Christians, the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. Now go back, you can leave that on the screen, go back to the first century. What are they devoted to? Well, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread and a rhythm of living in the life of Jesus together. And they're devoted to the prayers, the power of the Holy Spirit in them. It's almost like the Holy Spirit knows more about change than we do 20 centuries later. That God has directed through his spirit the, the shaping, the formation of his people so that at, uh, at one point in time, immediately following the resurrection, you have Rabbi Jesus, one of one, the only one who's like him, doing the stuff that he's doing. He's at a point in time, there in Galilee, he's going from place to place, and his disciples are following after him. Fast forward a couple months, now all of a sudden you have thousands of people who are engaging, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship with one another, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers, and they're being shaped increasingly ever more into the likeness of Jesus. So there's one rabbi, but now there's a bunch of little Christs. In fact, they were called at Antioch, You'll, we'll get there in a, a month or two or five or ten. Uh, they were called at Antioch Christians, little Christs, those who are beginning to live like him. Why? Because they were changing. Because to be a disciple is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to begin to do the things that Jesus is doing. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It's the beginning of this formational process that will begin to unfold over time. As we gather together on a Sunday morning, we seek to practice these things. As we break down into smaller communities during the week and are devoted to one another, committed to one another and the teachings of Jesus, we seek to practice these things. As we come to the breaking of bread and the cup, to the communion meal, we seek to practice these things, that we would declare the teachings that have gone before us, that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and broke it, blessed it, and gave it to all those who were around and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. And as he handed it out to them, he said, this is a blood, the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Just as it was handed to the disciples from Jesus, as it was handled to the apostle Paul, now it's handed to us thousands of years later. And we declare the apostles' teaching. We do it together in fellowship with one another. We do it in rhythm at least once a month, we come back to the table and we remind one another of what's true. And we do it inviting the power of the Holy Spirit to come and do his work among us, that we would be more like him. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There can sometimes feel like a tension between formation and evangelism, that we either work at becoming more like Jesus or we reach others with Jesus. 
But the reality is that those two things are fused together. As we become like Jesus, we begin to love the things that Jesus loves, including the people around us. And as we live in his ways, we become more like him. The bottom line for all of us is that there is a need, moment by moment, to simply say yes to the Spirit. And those yeses look different for all of us because we're all in different places and we all have different things that are right in front of us. But as we say yes to the Spirit, we begin to enter into the things that he has for us, be formed in his ways and reach the world around us in his ways. That formation and evangelism flow together, that we would say yes to the Spirit.